2 through 8 and 33 through 37. They say this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. 33 through 37 says this. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Throughout the Gospel of Mark, the crowds, the religious leaders, the disciples, and even Jesus' own family had been asking this question about the identity of Jesus. Who is this? Who is this guy? They've been asking this question ever since the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. One time, real early on, after Jesus had been teaching, He healed a man with an unclean spirit. And Mark says this in chapter 1, verses 27 and following. It says this. We'll put this on screen. They were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? Who is this guy? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Who is this? Who is this that his teaching is accompanied by supernatural healing? (laughs) It's a good question. Because, listen, if if someone around you is teaching about something as lofty as uh, the coming of the kingdom of God and freedom from sin and life that lasts forever past death, then you'd be asking the same question. Who is this? Especially if that kind of teaching was accompanied by supernatural healings of the lame and the blind. You and I would be asking the same exact question that they're asking in the Gospel of Mark. Who is this? There was one time, as we saw last week in Mark 8, when Jesus kind of wanted to know how the people on the street were answering that question. And so he said this in Mark 8, just a little bit before our passage today. Mark 8:27. In Mark 8:27, he asked the disciples, "Who do people say that I am? What's the word in the street about me? Who do people say that I am?" And they told him, "John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets." And then he says this to remind them 
And to remind us of the responsibility to, to answer that question for ourselves, he says this in verse 29, but who do you, who do you say that I am? This is the most important question any human being answers. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Friends, the most important people, most important question people can ever answer about you is who are you? Who are you? And what are you for? It's the same question. Who is Jesus? Who are you? What was his identity? And and, and what was he for? And what was he about? And what did this teaching mean? If that same question is not being asked in your lives, friends, (laughs) go back to chapter 8 and relearn sacrifice and death to self. The most important question anybody can answer is, who is this Jesus? The disciples, as we've already talked about a number of times, were a little bit slow to catch on. (laughs) Which, it's easy to look back and sort of, you know, blame them for being dumb. But but listen, they, they were just coming out of a tradition that had thought a certain way about who the Messiah was going to be. They expected a Messiah who would would return the nation of Israel to its former glory and who would free the the people of Israel from Roman tyranny. So so what God was doing in this Jesus, this Messiah who would suffer and lay down his life and then be raised to, to life to bring that freedom, that didn't make sense in their thinking. That didn't make sense in their world. That's why he was a subversive king, a Messiah who would suffer and die was not on their radar. So the answer to the question, who is this? For the disciples, who is this Jesus? Would have had to come from a place outside of their understanding. This is key for today. This is the key for the transfiguration here. It was crucial if they were going to see who Jesus was and what he'd come to do and what he was all about. It was crucial for that question of who he was to be answered from outside of their understanding. It was crucial if they were going to see who Jesus really was. You see, you see, God knew that there weren't categories for Jesus in the minds of the disciples. And so the transfiguration is him revealing his son in glory to show behind the curtain who they were really dealing with. Look at Mark 9, 2 through 8. Such a cool passage here. We're going to explain a lot here and then use the last half, 33 to 37, to sort of help us uh, make some practical application for us. And at first it may feel and look like, what does the transfiguration have to do with receiving a child? We'll put those together in a little bit here. It says this, verse 2, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So press pause. We'll spend some time here to kind of set the tone in the first verse here as we continue to go forward soon. But here are Jesus with his inner, inner circle of Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John were sort of his inner circle to whom he revealed a little bit more a little bit earlier because they were sort of leaders of the disciples. And Jesus expected them to continue to, to teach those around them and under their care about who Jesus was. And so he brings them up this high mountain and says, this is who, this is who I really am. So mountains are kind of a big deal in the Bible. And some of that is because, well, (laughs) the place where most of the Bible takes place has lots of mountains. But 
they're kind of a big deal in the Bible for a much more important reason, and it's because that mountains are a key place where God reveals himself. In the history of the people of God, time after time, cool things about God revealing himself to the people happened on mountains. And here in Mark, Mark 9, 2 and following here, Mark is reminding his readers of one of the most significant mountaintop moments in the whole Bible. Here's the gist of it. We're not going to have time to go back and, and pick out all the important and cool things that are parallels here. But the gist of it is this. Moses the first leader of the whole nation of Israel and the people of God, goes up the mountain to hear from God and down the mountain to speak to the people. That's the gist of these kind of mountaintop experiences here. Mountain was a mediator between the people and God. And in basic terms, he would go up the mountain to hear from God and down the mountain to speak to the people. And this mountaintop moment that Mark is referring to back in Exodus, uh, Exodus 24, if you look it up later, one of the main things he's referring to. The mountaintop moment in Exodus was an amazing moment when God's presence was there in in sort of fullness uh, to confirm to Moses that God was who he said he was. Same thing here. This is key here to understand. This was same kind of amazing mountaintop revealing of God moment. And in this mountaintop moment, God was revealing his son, Jesus, to confirm to Peter and James and John that Jesus' claim about who he was was legitimate. This is a mountaintop experience that showed that Jesus was legit. And Peter, James, and John went away from this totally different. We'll talk about that some as we go on in Mark. So keep reading. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And then in sort of typical brief Mark fashion, he takes this amazing concept and puts it in a little phrase that says, And he was, Jesus was transfigured before them. Uh, In typical Mark fashion, he sort of states something totally amazing in very simple terms. And the word transfigure here means to just change form. In basic terms, it's the word uh, meta, metamorphosis, basically, which we understand to be a changing of form. It describes an outward change that comes from within. An outward change that comes from and starts from within and then goes out and implies a complete change in form from one thing to another thing. In this case, from human body and flesh to the fullness of spirit. It says he was transfigured before them. I don't know what you think when you read something like that, uh, but <laughs> my first thought is, oh, yeah, sure. That makes sense. I totally understand. Just like all those other times I've seen transfigurations, right? Like, I have a category for that. No, no, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. And neither did Peter, James, and John. And so here's a little bit of further description from Mark. Keep reading verse 3. He describes it, uh, what we would call phenomenologically. He's getting this from Peter, who was his source for his writing here. It says, his clothes, Jesus' clothes, became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. The expression that Mark uses here suggests something that is beyond normal human experience. In other words, Jesus turns into some sort of dazzling, uh, white beyond white, supernatural form. Uh, Verse 3 is apparently, according to Mark and Peter, verse 3 is what transfiguration looks like. (laughs) 
flesh becoming infused with fullness of spirit. So let's keep reading. Pick up the pace here a little bit. 9.4 says this. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So, so Peter, James, and John are on the mountain with Jesus. He's changing from flesh uh, to spirit. And then the two of the greatest leaders in Israel's history appear with Jesus and are just kind of shooting the breeze with him. And at this point, if you're Peter, for example, and you're born a Jew and you're watching all this, uh, you wouldn't have known what to say either, which is what happens. Verse 5, keep reading. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Oh, it's a profound statement, Peter. Thank you. Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Verse 6, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Well, no, duh. I mean, what do you say when when supernatural breaks into time? Peter, like I probably would, you know, is stammering for, well, well, clearly that's a da-da-da, and we should da-da-da. What you do when supernatural breaks into time is you just listen and worship. When God reveals himself to you in power, giving you the evidence that you need to answer the who is this Jesus question, then you just, you just listen and you learn. You worship. But Peter here, of course, blurts out something about building a memorial. Which means uh, we could talk about why he does that and there are reasons why, but, but he still doesn't get it. He's calling Jesus. Notice what he calls him here in that verse. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi. He's still calling him a rabbi. He's just saying, teacher, teacher. He should be calling him Lord. When you watch a transfiguration, the appropriate word to use is Lord. Look at verse 7. More evidence of who Jesus is here. A cloud overshadowed them. This is, real quickly here, parenthetically, this is a cloud from the Old Testament which demonstrated that the presence of God was on display. There's a cloud that guided Israel out of Egypt. There was a cloud that appeared in the desert. There was a cloud that appeared to Moses. There was a cloud that filled the temple with the glory of the Lord. And this was that same cloud. And it says, a cloud overshadowed them, verse 7, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, verse 8, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So God the Father says he is who he claims to be here. And at the end, it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus because Jesus stands alone in the full power and presence of God there. And the three disciples get a glimpse of the worthiness of Jesus. They get this sort of behind-the-scenes look into Jesus' true power and glory and identity. And they must have gone away stunned. I mean, just think about it. Can you imagine having experienced something on this level? Something like transfiguration? This was the divine revealing of the glory of God to humanity. Showing that Jesus, who was in the flesh, was also God. This, this vision for Peter, James, and John is not of their own doing. 
It's a divine revelation. It's true insight into the identity of who Jesus is. It's something that comes not by human wisdom, but divine revelation. It has to be top down. They didn't have categories for who Jesus was. They didn't have categories for who Jesus was. It comes from God, which parenthetically is why we say as a part of our new nine habits, pray and study your Bible. This written word contains divine revelation. So here are Peter, James, and John, Jesus' inner circle of three, the main leadership of the twelve, who would turn the whole world upside down, Jesus, the subversive king, subverting their lives, them going into the world, extending that kingdom, subverting the lives of others through the power of the Holy Spirit. And they would turn, the upside, uh, turn upside down the world with a message of a man who was also God. And this transfiguration experience here was a central part of what would eventually become their own understanding and experience of the glory of God through Jesus. Part one. Part two, turn to 33 through 37 here. 33 to 37. We don't have time to unpack all of these verses a lot, uh, but they help us make sense of the transfiguration, and they help us understand how we respond to God's presence. That's what they help us understand. They help us understand how we respond to God's presence. There are many ways, but this is one of the key ways that someone who's experienced the presence of God responds. Verse 33. This was soon after they had been doing some ministry. Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. Jesus, for the second time, foretells his death and resurrection. The third time is in chapter 10 next week. And it says this, verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them. Ultimate Jesus juke moment here. What were you discussing on the way? (laughs) Uh... Nothing, Jesus. Which is functionally what verse 34 says. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They'd been caught, and they knew they were wrong, so they stayed quiet. So Jesus teaches them. Like a good shepherd does, he teaches them in that moment. Verse 35, here's what he says. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. One of the key verses, uh, incidentally here, in all of Mark, that's sort of a theme verses, verses 10, 43 through 5 there, 45 says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Same thing here is what he says. If anyone would be first in verse 35 there, he must be last of all and servant of all. Listen, folks, the responsibility of being Jesus came with the call to serve. He turns that right around and says the responsibility of being with Jesus in his presence, comes with the call to serve. And here's what he means by that. He extends that out a little bit in verse 36. He says this, 
This is cool. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, in the middle of the twelve. And then taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Right after three of the disciples had experienced the power of God's presence on that mountain, here they are, like our lives, after our mountaintops in the regular old reality of our lives. Here they are, arguing about who was the greatest Right on the heels of the mountaintop, they come down and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in this new kingdom. So what Jesus says is he tells them to welcome the weak. He says, do what I'm doing. Welcome the helpless. Because, friends, the experience of being in the presence of God comes with the responsibility of welcoming others into that presence. If, if we would begin opening our eyes to the people who need to experience the presence of God around us, we will begin doing things, like he says here, that take away from gaining worldly status. They were seeking to go after the worldly status, hoping that what Jesus would bring in the kingdom would bring them some power and control and, and earthly sort of security and safety. And so they were arguing about who would, would have the next in line seat to Jesus. And Jesus says, that's not how this works now. That's not how this works. He says, if you've experienced the power and the presence of God, you will bring others when you come off that mountain back into that experience. So, friends, the connection between these two passages is this. Find and welcome the helpless in your life in the name of Jesus. Jesus picks a child because a child represents the most weak and powerless person they could come into contact with. And this, this wasn't really how to be a good children's minister or a good children's ministry volunteer. That wasn't Jesus' point here. He used a child to say, this is the most helpless and weak person you can interact with because this child can't become who I created this child to be unless someone comes along and helps them see it. That's true in every one of your lives. It's true in my life. And so Jesus comes along, grabs a child and says, find and welcome the helpless in your life in the name of Jesus. Help them find and follow Jesus. That is what Jesus is calling to here. Simply put, ask yourself this question. As an application of this sermon, ask yourself this question. Does my life welcome people into the presence of God? Does my life welcome people? into the presence of God. Because, friends, we easily get excited about helping those we like, helping those who are like us, helping those who give us worldly return, helping those who are good at encouraging us, helping those who make us feel good. What Jesus is saying here is find those who are helpless who have not experienced my presence. What about those who are helplessly without a relationship with God? The question is, does my life welcome people into the presence of God? 
Peter, James, and John have just had this awesome experience of God's presence on the mountain. Friends, when you have experienced, when we have experienced that presence of God, welcoming people into the presence of God is our responsibility. Welcoming people into that presence is our responsibility. When you have been welcomed into that presence, you will extend that welcome to others. And if there's some places in your life, as there are in mine, if there are some places in your life where you're not yet doing so, then maybe there are some pieces that you and I haven't fully grasped about God's welcome to us. There's always more to know and understand about the grace of God for us. Does my life welcome people into the presence of God? Here's the thing. If your life does, people will go away asking, who is this? And then you'll be able to say, the power and the presence of Jesus. That's who it is in here. The answer to that question for them will be how they experience the presence of God through you. Who is Jesus? Who is this? Same question. Who are you? What are you for? Let's pray.